Listen. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, now that I have your attention, um, whenever I was uh, growing up, I, I grew up in a non-Christian family. And uh, when I became a Christian and I was actually studying with Andy every week, there would be times where my mom would call me and I'd be at a coffee shop studying with Andy. And she'd say, what are you doing right now? And I'd say, I'm, I'm studying. And I tried to not be specific about what I was studying. And, uh, and then she would ask some more questions and she would eventually get around to asking, are you studying the Bible right now with Andy again? And uh, whenever I'd come home, we'd talk about uh, why the Bible's not trustworthy. There'd always be stacks of papers and uh, uh, articles from atheistic websites on my desk in my bedroom that my mom wanted me to look at. They got series of videos on why the Gospels aren't trustworthy and stuff like that. And so I came from a more s- skeptical kind of background, and uh, which is something that I, I, I think is growing in our society right now. Just by a show of hands, how many of you know somebody uh, that was a Christian but became some kind of skeptic or atheist or agnostic, just by show of hands. And are these people that you guys interact with still on a semi-regular basis at least? Or at least yeah, so this is... Uh, moving to Atlanta, one of the things that I wanted to start doing was... Uh, you guys have heard of Meetup, where you can meet up with people, but you have an online thing that, like for whatever thing you like to do. So I created an a, a Atlanta Atheist and Skeptics Meetup Bible Study. And uh, all the things that I thought I was supposed to see in California, I've seen in Atlanta. And uh, so there, I've, I've had a lot of studies with skeptics and atheists. And what I want to do in this lesson uh, is just share some of the things that I've learned in studying with some of those skeptics. Uh, hopefully to reconfirm our faith, to show that Christianity makes better sense than any competing worldviews that we have in our society right now. Uh, but also to give us another tool of some of these people that you know in your life, maybe some ways that you could have some conversations with them. But we'll, we'll see this as we go through this. But I, I just want to begin this lesson uh, by talking a little bit about our society and some statistics. Uh, religious decline in the United States. And I'm not doing this like, a, oh, no, look at this. But this is there's good, I think, ways to approach some of these things. But I do want to show the statistics. The, whatever those things are called, uh, they're, they're only true for the United States. People have thought that religion is going to be on the decline like all over the world or something. It, the, it is on the decline in the United States, but not around the world, like especially in India, uh, China, Africa, places like that. So here's uh, some statistics that I think are interesting. In 2019, Pew Research found that uh, non-religious people, the title of the article was, In the United States, Decline of Christianity Continues at a Rapid Pace. And so they, they described people who are not religious as atheist, agnostic, or non-affiliated, something like that. And they found in 20, 2009 that it was 17% of the United States. But then in 2019, they found that it was 26% of people in the United States identify as non-religious in that way. And so that you see that that's a pretty big jump. Uh, just a, a, not even two years later, Pew Research or Gallup Research in uh, March of 2021 
they found that for the first time, less than 50% of Americans belong to a church. And in the article, they said, uh, the decline in church membership is primarily a function of the increasing number of Americans who express no religious preference. And so all of those are like scary and shocking and whatever, all that sort of thing. But what is the cause of this? What's the cause of it? Why is it that skepticism and disinterest in religion and God, sometimes what the skeptic might say, and this is what my mom and dad said growing up after I became a Christian, these are the kinds of things that they would say to me, is they would say, well, the reason that you've become a Christian, Eric, is because you've got emotional needs that need to be met, but we have been educated and we're the ones who have had life experience and we know deeper things and we're smarter and all this sort of thing. And so what the skeptic today would oftentimes say is something like, I've been enlightened by science and rationalistic thinking, but you've got these emotional needs. Have you heard people talk that way before? Uh, Richard Dawkins had a book that came out, I think, less than a year and a half ago. Uh, and he said this in, uh, in his book. Is it up there? Okay. All right. Outside Western Europe, where only a minority nowadays are religious, most people around the world still do believe in a god or gods, especially if they aren't well-educated in science. So uh, the more educated you are, whatever the, the trend is, the smarter you are, the less you are likely to believe in God. So this, this is how the skeptic would like to present themselves. But uh, one of the things that I've done whenever I've studied with skeptics is we get a group, I get a group of skeptics together. And the first thing I do is I say, I'm Eric, I'm a Christian. What do you guys identify as? And somebody will say, I'm Ashcon and I'm a secular humanist. Or I'm Avery and I'm just a straight up atheist or whatever. And they'll kind of go around and we'll talk about all these things. My second question with them is, uh, what led you to that? And I found that in those conversations that the, the cause, if you were going to try to like diagnose skepticism as if it was some kind of disease, and I'm not saying that it's a disease, but just what are the causes of it? In my experience in talking with skeptics and even in my family background, it's not because of enlightened rationalistic thinking. Oftentimes it's actually an emotional reaction to something. And so here's one uh, quote that, that would show this. Aldous Huxley was a famous atheist, and he said this, For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness, in other words, that there's no God that we have to answer to, was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the uh, morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. So at least with this guy, I don't know how many people he represents, but I think he represents some said that the reason that I was interested in disassociating myself from God or this idea of a creator that we have to answer to is that there were certain things that in my will I wanted to do. And with some of the skeptics that that I've known that actually were Christians that became skeptics, I've asked them before, okay, we can talk about the reliability of the Bible, all these things that you're throwing at me right now, but please answer this question first. Is there something that the Bible taught you that you didn't want to do or things that it told you to give up that you didn't want to have to give up? And then there's always a conversation when I ask that question that goes down that path. Uh, But other people, whenever I'm doing some of these studies, will cite some kind of bad religious experience. That I grew up in some kind of church, that uh, the preacher was a jerk, the elders were no good, 
uh, mom and dad were hypocritical Christians, whatever. And, and how do I, uh, how do I disassociate whatever truthfulness there might be in Jesus with this bad experience that I had in this whole setting that I learned about Jesus in? That's a very difficult thing. There's a third, another reason is that it's more accepted in our society today. This is one of the things that, uh, that when I've, whenever I've studied with the skeptics before, they've said, well, I feel like I can be more open about these things now because our society is generally more okay with this. Uh, and there's a lot of other things to say. I mean, try living in the 1500s and being an atheist and open about it. And it's not going to happen. Uh, and so our society is more open to these things. And so perhaps because of the, the time in which we live, that's one of the reasons for that as well. More peer pressure. If you want to be a really smart biologist and get a biology degree or whatever, do you suppose everybody in your cohort are going to look up to you if you're open about being a Christian? There's a lot of peer pressure involved with this. And so here's my question then. If there's, a, if one of the, 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 the I, I think the main reason for skepticism is rooted in some kind of an emotional thing. I want to do this, and I don't want anybody to tell me that I can't do that. Or I had this really bad experience, or I feel some peer pressure towards these things. And there's other reasons that we could list out here, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to do those one, those ones. How do you reason with a skeptic in our society? Whenever I first started doing these skeptic studies, uh, the first thing that I would do is try to come with evidence for the resurrection or give evidence on why we should trust the Bible or logical arguments for the existence of God. And it just went nowhere. Because if somebody's heart and will doesn't want to believe something, do you think objective arguments are going to be what's going to resonate with them? Because what's happening is they've got emotional barriers to belief. So what I've started doing now in these studies is I've been trying to help them understand why Christianity uh, makes emotional sense, which doesn't prove Christianity to be true, but it at least removes the emotional barriers. So what we do is I've taken different human needs that, that everybody would agree that we have a need for, and I'm going to do three of them in this lesson. I, I wanted to do four, but I'm going to do some of that tomorrow night. Um, we do a series of like five or six or seven studies where we take some human need and I've read a bunch of skeptics and atheists and I'm taking quotes that will accurately represent their worldview. And then we deconstruct that and show how Christianity actually offers the resources to give you the thing that you know you need. Would Jesus ever appeal to people that if you want freedom, then you need to abide in my word and then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Or in John chapter 10, when Jesus would talk about how he came to give life and give it abundantly, would he ever appeal to people based on the deep longings that you have within you? The woman at the well, I'll give you this living water and you'll never be thirsty again. He would talk to people about these deep needs that they had and reason with people about these things. And so that's what we do is we go through different needs and then we compare the secular worldview to the Christian worldview and then leave the question open, which worldview gives you the thing that you know you need? Does that make sense? All right, so uh, the first need that we're going to talk about in this lesson anyways is our need for, for meaning. Meaning uh, is something that everybody would want to have some sense of. Why am I here? So you look back to your origins. Why, why am I here to begin with? And then you also, meaning has something to do about forward thinking. What's going to be left after I die? Uh, is there going to be some lasting thing that I've accomplished or something like that? What do you think that the skeptic would say they try to find their meaning in? Or how would they go about trying to find their meaning? 
Uh, and this is one of the quotes that I bring up with skeptics, and they like this quote. I'm not trying to straw man anything here. But Adam Rutherford has got a pretty famous uh, podcast. He's from Great Britain. You'll see why in just a moment. But he says this, a meaningless universe does not mean we live our lives without purpose. I'm an atheist, but I try to live my life replete with purpose. Be kind, learn and discover as much as you can. Share that knowledge, relieve suffering when you can. Have tons of tones of fun. That's why it's not pointless. Um, have you ever, the skeptics that you know, have you heard them talk in this way? That I don't need to believe in some kind of transcendent God. It's a meaningless universe in the sense that there's no God that's given us meaning. I get to create my own meaning for myself, but there's no God to whom I have to answer one day. And you say, well, what are some of the things that you try to find meaning in life? Well, you try to have tones of fun. You try to, uh, share Things that you've learned with other people relieve suffering. This is pretty, I think, accurate to how people think today. So, and whenever I do these studies, I'm, I'm really stripping out a lot of quotes that I, that I show that we discuss in these studies. But if you were to try to deconstruct what's wrong with this approach, why is it that in this life that we live, that approach will not work? Well, just look at this quote again and think about all the things that he says he finds meaning in. And ask yourself this question. What kind of person can find meaning in life in those things? Can the majority of the world population say that that's their meaning in life? Can you imagine going to somebody in Sierra Leone? Or can you go to uh, a slave in the United States in the 1700s and say, I know life is really hard, but this is how you find meaning in life. Have tons of fun. Relieve suffering. I know you're the one suffering, but try to relieve it. So this kind of approach can only work with people that are in positions of wealth and privilege. This does not apply to the vast majority of the world. So if your worldview is something that cannot apply to the majority of the world, is there something wrong with your worldview, just even on that point? Well, here's a second problem with this approach. And I think this is the biggest problem with it. If this is your meaning in life, have tons of fun. What? what okay, so I, I have tons of fun by hiking. I really like to hike. But then I get in a car accident and I'm paralyzed for the rest of my life. Do you see how fragile it is to try to derive meaning in life from something in a world that's transient? If I make my wife and four children my meaning in life, one accident can take away my meaning in life. And so it's very fragile. What if I make my job or my career my meaning in life? Well, I could get fired for some all kinds of different reasons. I try to write a book or something like that, and I try to invest in the stock market. But then that you're putting all of your eggs in a very fragile basket because this world is prone to decay. So that's those are some problems with that. So what would then be the biblical worldview on this? Well, there's a couple things to say about this. Is number one, we're made in God's image. The first thing that the Bible says about people going back to our origins. Isn't it interesting that when God would say in other passages, don't make any graven image of me, make no image of me. This same Hebrew word for made in God's image in Genesis chapter one. This is the same word that's used in other places, like in, I think, Numbers 32 is one of those places, where God tells them to go into the land of Canaan and wipe out the Canaanites and wipe out their images of their false gods. Same Hebrew word. So why is it that God would say, make no images of me? Well, what if somebody said, well, my image of God is it's like a bull with really strong horns, and that's my image of God. What is that missing about God? 
He can also be like a lamb and he can be merciful and gentle and kind and meek. And so if I take one image that's unchanging and I say, this is God to me, I'm leaving out a lot of other things because he has a personality that can change in his emotions and things like this. What's the one thing that God made that can adequately be an image of him? Every human being, whether you're rich or poor, whether you live here and are educated or you live somewhere else where there's no education and you're you're in poverty. This applies to everybody. We've been dignified with this purpose, this royal purpose of being an image of God. So that's certainly really good. And also our choices have eternal impact. The things that I decide to do have hope, uh, long-term ramifications. I'm going to say more about that in, in a little bit. But if one of the major problems with the secular approach to meaning in life is that suffering, traumatic things happen to everybody, and it will take your, away your meaning. What happens when Christians suffer? Is, is Christian, Christianity immune to suffering with regards to our meaning in life? Uh, I think about 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. What happens when the Christian suffers? Uh, it drives them deeper into their meaning. And P- Peter's writing to an audience that have been scattered from their homeland all throughout the book. Have you ever noticed the kind of suffering that, that is prominent to that audience in First Peter? It's what people are saying about them, and it's what people are saying to them, speaking evil against them as evildoers. Uh, they're re- being reviled, all of these kinds of things. That this suffering that they're going through is driving them deeper into the one that they're following. So we're immune in that sense. Nothing can take away our meaning in life. So that's the first need. The second one, tomorrow night, normally in this lesson, I'll talk about identity next, but I'm going to do that in the sermon tomorrow. The the next thing in this lesson that I want to deal with is our need for for morality. Um, Everybody's got a sense of moral obligation. Nobody's going to say that, well, I think racism is wrong, but it's okay if you think it's, it's okay. Or I think... Murdering babies for fun is is wrong personally, but if you want to do that, then that. Everybody's got this sense that there are moral obligations that don't just apply to me, but they apply to everybody. And so, uh, what do skeptics, are, are atheists and skeptics, are they concerned with morality? Have you ever met people that didn't believe in God that are really concerned about human rights and social justice? They're, yeah. And that's great that they're concerned with those things. The question then would be, okay, why do you care about it? What's your grounding or your basis for it? And they would have answers to this. One of them being that in the secular approach, more uh, morality comes about from naturalistic evolution. Have you ever heard people say that when you look at the animal kingdoms, that there's some monkeys that help other monkeys sometimes, or there's like a bird that'll come and help another bird do something. And so you can observe this kind of thing in the animal kingdoms. And so what happened throughout the years is that evolution eventually got to this point where those things that we observe in the animal kingdoms uh, started to get applied to human beings. All right, so what's wrong with that? Uh, One thing would be that the strong eating the weak is really inconsistent with altruism. What is is it that... uh, Uh, Darwinian evolution, as it's generally taught, is that it's, it's the survival of the fittest. 
And so if it's the strong eating the weak, the survival of the fittest, how do you get equal human rights from that? One of the things that I try to point out with skeptics when I study with them is that that you want to tell me that my worldview is uh, a faith thing, which, yeah, that's, that's fine. But they want to say our, my worldview is not a faith thing. And one of my favorite things to bring up is that you believing in equal human rights is great if you believe in it, but you have to believe it by faith. Your worldview doesn't give you any reason for that. So there's one problem with that, but there's another problem. Uh, Thomas Nagel is an atheist, and uh, he was an NYU professor, and he wrote a book called Mind and Cosmos. And in the book, he's criticizing Darwinian evolution. And in the book, this is one of his criticisms of it. And I bring this up when I study with the skeptics. If evolutionary biology is a physical theory, as it is generally taken to be, then it cannot account for the appearance of consciousness and of other phenomena that are not physically reducible. One of those being value judgments and morality. You see the point here is that if evolution, as it's generally taught, is that it's chemicals doing things, but there's no uh, non-material thing at work. It's all material things. How can a material process create the immaterial value judgment and the immaterial sense of morality. How can it how can that mechanism create that? And that's a problem in that worldview. Alright, so that's the first approach that a skeptic might have. By the way, as we go through this, my point in this lesson is not that you need to go read all these people and know all these things, but do do these things create some helpful talking points? Good questions to ask. How do you find meaning in life? And help, uh, helping us think, okay, well, how could we deconstruct that? Uh, okay, so I, I think it's as helpful to see that atheists even sometimes recognize some of these things. Okay, another approach that, uh, that a secular person might have to morality is that comes from social consensus, uh, which is just really easy because of Nazi Germany and slavery was okay in a lot of countries a thousand years ago. So, uh, and that's what those societies believe, so that, that's not right either. Okay, so then we ask the question, what's the biblical worldview in this regard? As soon as you start to suggest in the world that we live in right now that that Christianity has better things to say about morality, do you suppose a skeptic might laugh about that? Like, I remember my bad religious experiences where there were people that had what I like to call unauthorized attitudes in the church that I grew up in or whatever. And they were jerks and they were mean and they were backbiters. Don't tell me that... Christianity has got something better about morality than any other worldview. My argument is not that Christians are always going to be more moral people, or at least people that claim to be Christians will be more moral. My argument is that Christianity has better resources to be concerned with morality. Whoever you are, whether you're a skeptic or a Christian, will everybody live totally consistently with their worldview? No. No. The skeptic doesn't live consistent with their worldview by being concerned with equal human rights. So that's a problem for, with everybody, no matter what their worldview is. Okay, so, so what is it that Christianity offers that at least gives us a better sense of why we should be concerned with morality? Um, okay, so look at this clicketizer. It's made by Logi, Logi or something. I like these ones. More churches are switching to these ones rather than the old ones that were like smaller. This is a nice one. Um, so let's say that, okay, I got some nails on my deck, some screws on my deck that are uh, coming up. What if I went to all the nails and I started hitting the nails down with this clicketizer? 
And then I, it breaks and it shatters. And I call Logi and I t- say, you guys make terrible hammers. You make terrible clicketizers. And they go, what were you doing with it? Well, I was using it to pound the nails. It looks strong and all that. That's not why we made it. You can't give any value judgment about whether somebody's good or bad unless you know why they're here. How can you assess if something's good or bad if you don't even know what it's there for? So one of the things that God has given us, again, a clear sense of purpose that we're made in God's image. That, which means that if we're made in God's image, our sense of morality flows from God's character. Where does morality come from for the Christian? We are holy because he's holy. We love others because he first loved us. We forgive others because he first forgave us. Forgave us. Forgived. Um, I'm moving to Bowling Green and that'll be okay. Uh, <laughs> sorry if you're from there. <laughs> But you see the point, though, <laughs> that uh, our sense of morality doesn't come just because God willy nilly said this over that, but it comes from an imitation of his character. All right. So Christianity has got a better sense of why we should be concerned with morality. Again, I'm glad when the skeptic is concerned with those things, but their worldview does have some poverty problems with regards to why they should care about it. All right. Here's a, the, a third need is our need for uh, hope. Everybody lives their present life in regards to what they think about the future. And uh, if you think that the future is going to be really bright, then you're going to have a good outlook on things. If, if, it's, if you don't think the future is going to be too good, then uh, you're going to be really concerned about that. No worldview is really worth its immaterial weight if it doesn't have good answers for what happens when we die, though. That's the question of hope. And do you think our society is doing a good job of instilling hope right now. We've got, uh, uh, there's more and more people that are not having kids. More people want to have dogs. And then they talk about dogs being their children. I, I'm sorry. If it's, I, it's just a weird thing. I don't know. The suicide rate has been going up. Dystopian novels, all that sort of thing. So, so bad, bad, bad. Our society is not doing a good job of instilling hope. But it's something that we all know that we need. But if you were to ask a, a, a skeptic person what's your basis of finding hope? What, what's it in? These are some of the answers that, that uh, people might say. Number one is that you hope that you leave the world a better place. Have you ever heard people talk that way? That I hope that when I die, I'll be able to leave the world a better place. I can make some kind of difference. And maybe you will. Maybe there'll be some contribution that you make. But at the same time, there's kings that we know existed only because we found like a little rock that had his name inscribed in it, but we don't know anything else about the guy. But there's a lot of people that feel like they haven't had any kind of cause to live. They wonder what they're going to leave behind after they die. And so they get involved in all kinds of different sorts of movements and things like this. And Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 15 says, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. There are some things in this life that will never ever be fixed. And I'm glad that you see that it's a problem. And there's some people that might not see that that's a problem. but And so you're good in seeing that that's a problem. But at the same time, there are things that will never, ever be fixed. But let's just say for a moment that you could fix it. Let's say that you want to end poverty or world hunger or something. And if you want to make some contributions to those things, I'm not saying that, that any of that's bad. Let's say that you really make a dramatic difference. 
Imagine for a moment that you're on an airplane and the airplane is coasting. So it's got like a peaceful coast to its to its eventual crash. And so in this peaceful seven minutes before you crash, you go to the bathroom in the airplane and you go you open like the little door that's hard to get into. And when you close it, you know how the light's supposed to go on? You close it and the light doesn't go on. And you go to the bathroom and you got like four minutes left and you get out and you talk to the steward person and you go, the light's not working. We have to fix the light. On an airplane that's about to crash, will there be no more consciousness of anybody on this plane? If your worldview says that there will eventually be no human consciousness, everything's going to be destroyed in some way or another, why fix the light on the airplane? Why not just go on living however you want to live? Why are you concerned about that? I'm, again, I'm glad that you do. But, but your worldview wouldn't lead you to be concerned. It's almost as if you were made for something else. That, that's one approach that somebody would say is that they hope that they can leave the world a better place. But other people would also say that you accept death as a natural part of life and you learn to embrace it. Um, uh, I recently read a book by a woman named Catherine Osmond, and she's an atheist who wrote a book called Grace Without God. And towards the end of the book, she there is this moment where her daughter was uh, asking about grandma who had passed away. And she, she had this kind of like soliloquy kind of moment where she was thinking to herself, what do I say to my daughter? Because the daughter had said, is grandma kind of like X, Y, or Z, whatever the answer was. And it was kind of this belief in an afterlife where there's consciousness and stuff like this. And so the mom had this moment where she tried to think about how to answer her kid. And this is part of what she said to herself that she couldn't bring to say to her kid, even in this book. She said this to herself. Our bodies decompose, falling back into the earth, merging with all the other matter that makes up our planet. In the future, our decomposed bodies might provide nutrients to the trees. Someone might, might hang a tree from one of those, uh, uh, hang a swing from one of those trees, or sit beneath the shade of its leafy branches, or make a painted horse from its wood. All right, so I got a six-year-old, and um, let's say that somebody that we know and love passes away, and my son says, "So what happened to him?" Well, uh, his ashes are going to be spread under a, a, some, in some dirt someday, and that could feed a tree, and you might be able to swing on that tree one day. What if somebody makes a baseball bat with that same tree and kills somebody with the baseball bat? Do you almost have to just deaden certain things that are intuitively true about us to be okay with that worldview? The Bible teaches that, that death is an enemy, but after death, that we've got something better waiting for us. But have you, do you and we'll say more about that in just a second, but this, this idea is becoming more and more prominent in our society right now. You know, uh, there was one state recently that uh, allowed people to, to use their ashes to help plant trees, actually. And so there's people that are really trying to find some sense of meaning in this. Now, what, what is the biblical alternative to that? Uh, maybe the most succinct passage in the Bible, or one of them, is First uh, Thessalonians chapter four, verses sixteen and seventeen. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. 
And that quote that I just showed, that's more of like a Buddhist or pantheistic kind of view that when you die, you're like a dewdrop going back into the ocean. That's the imagery that, that Buddhists will use. But contrast, do you see in this passage, the dead in Christ will rise. We who are alive will be caught up. Do you notice that in the biblical hope that, that God offers is that you still get to be you. I still get to be me. The dead in Christ, we who are alive, will be caught up. You, you don't ever lose your sense of identity and who you are, but you get to be perfected now. So that's one aspect of it. But in verse 17, it says that we get to be caught up together with them. With who? I, so I've been a Christian 13 and a half years or something like that now. And I have not been a Christian long enough for Christians that have really meant a lot to me to, to see them pass away. Uh, there's somebody at Embry Hills that I was worried was going to pass away this last week and he didn't. And I remember when I was with him uh, and I walked out of, out of the house, I started tearing up because there was something that felt like uh, that might have been the last time I was going to see him. And he went to the, the ER that same day. Um, when, when there's Christians that have meant a lot to me that start passing away, I think the, the with them part of that is, is going to be important. It's something that the Bible talks about. Is it, it, because oftentimes people will want to say, well, you're going to be with the Lord. And that's the main thing. That's, and that's going to be the next thing I talk about. The being with the Lord is going to be the best part. I understand that. But in Thessalonians, what is Paul trying to do for this audience? There's some of these people that have passed on. And there's some of these Christians that are sad that some of their loved ones have passed on. Is that one of the motivators that there's going to be this great reunion one day? I think so. But as we do know, the greatest thing is that you get to be with the Lord, who's the God of all comfort. He's the light of the world. He's the good shepherd. He's the refuge for the oppressed. He's the perfect father. He's the God of peace. He's the God of grace. He's the redeemer. You want to be with a God like that forever? What we don't want after we die is just consciousness because you get that in hell. When we talk about wanting life after death, there's a sense in which everybody has consciousness after death. What we want after death is to be loved and we get to be with the God whom all love emanates from whom all love emanates. Does that sound a little bit better than being able to nourish a tree? And are there people that sincerely believe these things? That it would be helpful to gently ask them questions like, does that really satisfy as compared to this, these other things that, that God seems to understand psychologically what we need? And he talks about these things in his Bible. Maybe that points to a creator who designed us with these needs that we have. Does that maybe remove some of the emotional barriers to Christianity? Will that maybe help people be more interested in looking at some of the objective arguments for God in the Bible and then just looking at what the Bible says anyways without as much of that baggage? Uh, in the skeptics that I've studied with, it's been helpful for them to walk through some of these things. Um, Christianity has the best explanatory power for what human beings need. And maybe there's a challenge in all of this for us. Have you been trying to find your morality, your sense of identity, which we'll talk about tomorrow, or your, uh, your, your sense of hope in things in this world, even though you're, you're a, a Christian? We've got to corral ourselves back and go back to what God says about these things and find our hope and our trust and our confidence in him. 
So if you're here tonight and you're subject to the invitation, we're going to sing the song, I Heard the Voice of Jesus Say. If there's anybody here that needs to listen to what Jesus has said about these things and pay attention and heed his words, please come forward while we stand and while we sing.